Like this past Christmas, my son hands me his Christmas list. I'm not lying. There's about $5,000 worth of shit on his list. And I look at my son and I go, hey, you know, you got a lot of really expensive things here. He goes, yeah, dad, but it's Santa. And he makes everything. So it's free. And I look at him, I go, hey, I don't know how to break this to you, but I mean, uh, every once in a while, Santa has a shitty month. Sometimes he thinks he's gonna win a million dollars on America's Got Talent. And, uh, <laughs> next thing you know, he's on West 3rd and McDougal Street. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. The voice you just heard was my pal Joe Matarese from his 2017 comedy special, Medicated, recorded live at the Village Underground in New York City, right there in the West Village at the corner of McDougal and West Third Street, where he was thinking of creative ways to make money so that he could buy his kid gifts on his Christmas list. I remember the Christmas list thing. My kids don't do it quite to the extent that my brothers and sisters and I used to. I remember like the catalogs would arrive at the house around August. This is my recollection. Don't hold me to this. But my recollection was we'd like break out the service merchandise catalog. Raise your hand if you remember service merchandise. Anybody? I can't see you while you're driving, but while you're driving or on the treadmill or whatever, raise your hand if you remember service merchandise. Okay. If you're not familiar, service merchandise sold a wide variety of things from like blenders to stereo equipment to jewelry. I don't think they had any closed service merchandise. It was just like merchandise. And I remember, you know, you go in there and you start turning pages and be like, I want this, I want that, I want this. And we'd make these crazy long lists, like two pages, single spaced lists of stuff that we just wanted for Christmas. And we would present them to my parents and our parents, they truly were patient people because they never hit me when I presented them with it, my outrageous demands. I think the service merchandise, I'm distinctly recalling wanting a 14 carat gold nugget pinky ring when I was 13 and my parents in their wisdom decided I didn't need that. And I appreciate that since it probably would have set me on a life of crime. Anyway, you've likely seen Joe Matteris in one of his many television appearances, including two sets on late show with David Letterman five on late, late show with Craig Ferguson or on his comedy central presents half hour among many other TV appearances as a finalist on America's got talent, AGT to the fans Joe received a standing ovation from the two-person, 2,000-person, not two-person, 2,000-persons crowd and all four celebrity judges. The unanimity of that ovation did not result in a win for him, as you just learned. Joe's recorded seven comedy albums and appeared on WTF with Mark Marin, one of the most popular podcasts on this green planet. Now, with all these amazing credits, you'd probably think that this native of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, would be at the top of the comedy game, but like so many other talented comedians who are not quite household names, Joe's out there grinding it out on talent and wit, making hay when and where he can. That's the thing. There's so few people who actually make a living as a comedian. The curve is so steep at past the 99.8th and a half percentile where you've got like Chappelle and Chris Rock and Gaffigan making $20 million a special. And then you got half a percentage point to the left of those guys, you got people just out there trying to pay their bills. 
And Joe's one of those guys. You know, stand-up's his passion, but it's also his job. He's been doing it for 30 years, and it gets harder as it gets older. He'll talk about that because he's just trying to balance life as a dad and a husband and a comedian. Joe's married to a wonderful woman who has a PhD in psychology, hi Steph, and works as a researcher at Columbia University. They juggle their schedules to raise two kids in the suburbs of New York City. You know, the odds of being able to make a living as a comedian or any other artist for that matter are only slightly higher than those winning the lottery, but Joe continues to fight the good fight and I admire his commitment and refusal to back down. It might be because he's Italian that he just keeps fighting. Is that, can I say that? Is that considered racist? I don't think it is. I don't I think it is. I think Rocky, he admires Rocky and I admire the Rocky in him. Full disclosure, I've spent many weekends as an opening act with Joe on the road and I consider him to be a good friend. So please enjoy this conversation with Joe Matarese or as the wonderful Gary Gullman calls him, Joe Matarese. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. You said you're going to go no Adderall for this interview? Yes, but I did take extended release this morning because I had a, uh, a meeting with Netflix at 11 a.m. Oh, you did? Well, I'm home. I was in New York City for that meeting. Oh, good. How'd it go? I guess I would say it went well. But to people that don't ever pitch television shows, they would say going well is you sold your TV show and we're making, you know, a season. Right. And that didn't happen. But they gave us notes that made sense. And now, uh, do you believe the lawnmower just goes off right now? As that's always, right? Well, it's either that or the leaf blower. So you went into Netflix with two different production companies? Two different production companies. Basically... Um, this one girl that I hadn't seen in like 20 years, she was a comedian. She stopped doing comedy a long time ago and got into uh, producing and, and uh, making television shows. I bumped into her. She told me what she did for a living. We started like catching up and I told her about a, a web series that I made and she's like, you should send that to me. Maybe we, you know, who knows, you know, what, if we could do anything together in the future. So I sent her the, the web series because it was the thing that I made that I was really the most proud of, uh, probably out of anything I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And she got back to me like a couple months later, and she said, you know, I should introduce you, and you should go meet with this guy, Matt, uh, at this uh, departure, is the name of his production company. She goes, I've sold him shows, and you know him. I'm like, I know him? She's like, yeah, he's married to this woman, Marla, who used to be a manager that I used to work with assistant. And we were really friendly. Like she was a sweetheart. And I even said to this guy, Matt, I said, if you're married to her, then you have to be like a nice guy, you know, unless, and then I said, unless opposites attract. <laughs> and he laughed. He laughed in the text or whatever, or the email. So, I was going to have a meeting with him, and then I called the girl, and I said, you know, I'm not sure what I should be pitching this guy. Like, am I pitching him the web series for a scripted television show? And I said, I, I went to his website, and a lot of the shows that he's made that he's gotten on, on the air seem to be fix-it shows. 
do-it-yourself kind of shows. And she goes, yeah, he has done a lot of those. He's doing this other small thing. That's what I was going to send you for where he was thinking comedians could help him do it. And then we just started chatting. And as we were chatting, she's starting to learn about me. And you know this because I'm really into house fixing and not I'm never not doing something to my house. Right. And, and if I don't know how to do it, I go and Google and ask questions to people or go on YouTube and I learn how to do it. And then I hire people to help me do the rest if I can't if I come to something that I go oh, I can't I can't do that part of it that's that's too hard is it going to be a, an idea along those lines it was interesting because uh, I mean I don't know if this is interesting to your listeners but I have this happen a lot in my career where and and I'm not slamming production companies or anything like that but what happens is she started crafting a television show off of that and knowing me and my connection with a lot of comedians. And she put a whole pitch deck together and she worked on it with me and this other guy who owns this other production company that I told you. And it's a production company. You're not pitching to a network. So we were having phone calls and I was being really honest. And they were like basically asking me to fudge a little bit, which was to... Be an expert in some and, and, you know, and don't show that you're not an expert and that you sometimes have to learn how to do things. And I followed their lead because they're the experts, right? They sell television shows for a living. I'm a 30 year comedian who's occasionally has meetings to try to sell television shows or meetings to try to get people to invest money in a project that I'm doing, you know, so I follow their lead. And this is, I swear to God, this has happened like five or six times. And I'm sure people in the money world and in business can relate to this. You get into the meeting with the big wig and they pitched the whole idea. And I went with them. Like I altered it a little bit. You know, I said, all right, I'm the expert. You know, put it the way you want to put it. You lied. I lied a little bit. And they went through the whole pitch. And also the guy we were pitching to at Netflix I know him very well. He's been in the comedy business forever. And he actually, I used to teach stand-up. And he was uh, he took my class once and did tried stand-up because he said it was on his bucket list. So I'm friendly with him. So it was a pretty loosey-goosey meeting. That's funny. And he listens to the whole pitch and then basically comes back with, here are my notes. One, I want a more detailed pitch document that's like done more from the producer's end. Like I really want to see the arc a little bit i want to see uh, how you know how an episode starts and i want there to be more of a takeaway i like that joe is more somewhere in between an expert and a novice i like that like he's making it look like hey you can do it he goes there needs to be a takeaway which mm -hmm. and i stopped right there and i said i totally agree i said everybody loves things that teach you and entertain you at the same time i go think about it when the daily show was on with john stewart people really loved it because it was like you were watching the news but you were laughing your ass off while you were learning all the new subjects you missed that week i said or howard stern is very good at comedically giving you all the hot topics that, that are going on and making them funny and, and I said documentaries are really popular now that we have all this streaming content. And those are another thing that you're being entertained by while you're learning about a subject. It's That's the best. So he was like, your show should... He goes, I would love it if people were at a... Um, 
you know, they're at a party and now they're talking about what you taught them in a way that they're not saying they learned it from you. Like they're acting like they know it now. And I said, yeah. And along with them feeling they can go out and do the project. This is mostly a non-industry show. So tell the audience what would happen from here and what percentage likelihood that something happens with Netflix around this idea. Well, the percentage is super, 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 super low. Okay, well, think about it. I mean, this has to connect in business. The percentages will go up higher if you were pitching to smaller places. If you're pitching to somewhere that's not going to change your life, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That not a lot of people are going to see it. It's a small, uh, you know, maybe it's a web show or it's just on, you know what I mean? Like that's going to pay. That's an easier sell than Netflix is. You know you're at the top of the game when you walk in and their office is like, you don't want to leave. That's how nice it is. Like their offices <laughs> were so beautiful and me being a guy that loves, you know, interior design and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was pimped out like you wouldn't believe in this place. And the, and the guy goes, these are our temporary offices. They weren't, that wasn't even their main office. He said they're, they're moving. Were there snacks in the meeting? No, but there could have been. There was a lot of oh. snacks in the waiting room. I could have. They had like a full restaurant in the middle of the offices. Like there was like like it literally looked like a cafe in the middle of everything. I was like, wow, this is crazy. Okay, so I want to take a step back. When I first met you in the green room of the Laughing Skull Lounge, oh, three years ago, and we discussed my dream to do comedy full time, you told me, "Quit while you still can." <laughs> What did you mean by that and why'd you say it? I think I said, why do you want to hurt yourself? You already, you know, are successful. You could stay in that successful business and, you know, work with people that are more stable, that (laughs) that make sense. They get back to you when you contact them about some sort of business thing you've put together. You don't have to like, they're, they're not flaking out left and right. And, uh, and yeah, and you can feel happier when you're in show business. Nobody gets back to you when they say they're going to get back to you. And that doesn't mean they're not interested. That's the hard part. I mean, usually they're interested, they get back to you, but it's like, it's the Island of Misfit Toys. I mean, that's what they say. It's just people go into show business because it looks fun and they can make a lot of money and it looks like they don't have to do anything that resembles work. That's why they do it. Do you think comedians are gluttons for punishment? Uh, What I've learned, because there's been so many shows out in the last five to ten years about behind comedy, you start to realize comedians don't have a choice, but they become comedians because of a defense mechanism. Like something's gone wrong and they do comedy (laughs) because it fills it. It seems like it's filling the void. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. Let's explore your void. You grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. What was your house like growing up? We were middle class. I guess you would call it middle class. My dad is a chemical engineer. He went to night school for 10 years to get his degree, which I wasn't impressed with that until I got older. I was like, wow, he did that while he was raising kids. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, right? stay-at-home Italian mom who cleaned the heck out of everything. Everything was perfect. I lived in the suburbs right outside of Philadelphia. What do you want me to fill in here about 
No, you, I just, I just, that's what I was looking for. So family life and what your parents did and what kind of a student were you? I was not a good student. Terrible. The worst out of, I'm one of three. My brother did better than me and my sister probably did better than him. They both went to universities. My brother got a scholarship for baseball and my sister went to school also, but she had different struggles. Like the dysfunction in our family that I think is a lot of chemical imbalance of some sort uh, manifests its way, you know, in different ways. Like my sister, I don't know what you would, if you met her, you would go, well, she's not, she wouldn't come across crazy like how comedians are crazy. She would come across like, does she have Asperger's? Like something's off, I don't know what Mm -hmm. it is. But conversation was just not, easy with her and then i always say her episode was she had that was her episode then my brother you know he had a small anxiety time in his life where he wouldn't leave the house he had to stop going to school he got really bad anxiety probably in junior high eighth or ninth grade maybe freshman year in high school and i always say my episode was starting to do stand-up comedy you know, like that, <laughs> that was mine. But no one said anything about that. That gets left alone. That's not the underlying disease. That's the symptom. So your teachers said you were lazy. Were you lazy or was this a manifestation of your chemical imbalances? Uh, well, back, you know, I'm 51 years old. So back then, if you had learning disabilities, they were said that you were lazy. That's what they said. Or your mom and dad thought you were lazy. You know, the teachers would probably, let me think what they would say. Uh, if he would apply himself, he would, you know, right. if he would apply himself, he, he would do better. But he's easily distracted or whatever, or he's talking all the time. You know, like all these little symptoms that come out in a psychiatrist's office. They didn't notice, like now, like if a psychiatrist asked me about my childhood, they go, oh, yeah, you have an, you had an anxiety problem and you have ADD. Like they can tell in two seconds. I got in fights. I can remember standing up in the middle of class, walking over to this other kid, putting him in a headlock and dropping him to the ground. (laughs) And I I didn't even think that was weird, which is... Why did you do it? He just was annoying me. He was like, I don't know. He was like saying stuff about me. Maybe he was throwing like spitballs and hitting me in the back of the head. And I just got physical. You know, I got angry. A lot of that I found out later was because of chemical imbalances and as i got old, even older than that i realized there was it was on both sides of my family everybody was on medication my mom's side and my dad's side my i had a cousin who committed suicide and who was a heroin addict i mean just like it was just all around but nobody talked about it, it was always like on the right. on the hush hush you know so when you were in high school did you ever think about how you were going to make a living did that ever enter your your thoughts well in in high school I don't know if I would, it it didn't register in my mind as I want to do this because this is what I want to do when I get older, but there Mm -hmm. was a lot of ideas of things that I just wanted to do or try. Like what? I can remember I met a girl in like a study hall and she told me she was going to audition for the school play that day. And for some reason I went, you can audition for the school when when is that and she was like today after school and it wasn't even like i did it because i was like interested in the girl i was like i i want to perform i just had this feeling in my body i want to perform and i went and i auditioned for the school play like 
just random. And it wasn't because I, you know, I thought, oh, I always wanted to be an actor when I was older. I didn't have parents that kind of instilled that. It's funny because I've read a lot of books on business as I got older. And I know there's a lot of books out there where they're about people successful in business, writing books about how to teach your kids how to be successful and and, and how can you do that because kids fight all that. They don't want to be mentored by their dad. And I know for a fact my dad was never like, what do you want to be? That that never came up. But (laughs) definitely was, was listening to comedy albums nonstop whenever I was like in a mood when I were I get in a fight with my parents there was a lot of going into my own room shutting the door and listening to comedy or watching comedies on tv and wanting to go see comedy movies it was like that was my medication back then it would take my mind off of these anxiety attacks that I was having it would bring me back to reality and make me feel better it was like it was soothing for some reason comedy made me turn back into myself who did you listen to i had a lot of comedy albums i had you know i had robin williams i had eddie murphy's delirious i had old richard pryor albums which i actually have one the one i listened to when i was a kid i still have it and i found it and i like framed it and put it on the wall it was like his here and now album yeah and a lot of saturday night live and whenever there were comedians on tv i was using a VHS recorder and recording them all right. and just studying and just watching them over and over. Whenever I felt anxious or panic, I would go into the basement. That's where the VHS player was. And I, I, right. I labeled them all like with the comedians names on them. And I would just watch them. I had, I'm, I'm anytime someone did a comedy special, I, I taped it with the VHS recorder and I would rewatch right. them, you know? So how did you get into comedy yourself? Well, like I said, it was it was a feeling inside and not till somebody else mentioned it, just like the going out for the school play. I had a friend I, I did somehow go to college, but it was community college, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. and one of the guys that I met there. I'm not laughing at community college. No, you can laugh because I've, I've I've heard I've you heard know you the say bits that. that I do about. I it. know the bits you do about community college. So they make me they make me laugh <laughs> when you even say the words. I've heard them 67 times. So. He came over to my house one day and told me that he did an open mic at some place called the Comedy Works in Philadelphia and how fun it was. And he started telling me some of the jokes he did. And I was like, what do you do? And he's like, you go there and you sign up and they give you five minutes. And I was like, oh, my God, can I come with you next week? Because I had wanted to do it for so long, but I was just... I didn't have that go-getter in me, you know, like you're saying. I'm, I'm putting this together in my head as you were asking me it. I'm, I'm like, I'm ahead of you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, I didn't didn't think about that until it got presented to me from somebody else. Like, I wasn't like, hmm, I want to do comedy. Where is there a comedy club? <laughs> he was like, it's the Comedy Works. It's on 2nd and Chestnut. It's in Philadelphia, Wednesday night. You got to go there at 6. You sign up. You come back at 8 o'clock. They post a list up showing the order for the night, and you do your five minutes. So that's how I found out about it the first time and literally fell in love with it right away and never stopped doing it. Literally never took a break, never quit. Been doing it for 30 years now. What did your parents think when you started? My dad was always the positive one in my in my household, my dad. And then my mom was the negative one. And 
I I don't know. I I know now that I'm adult, I can look back at this, but my mom will get so negative and so mad sometimes that my dad stopped standing up for me. Cause I used to get mad. I would like call my mom out on it. I go, why are you being so mm. negative? This, I want to try this. And then my dad would say something like, yeah, to my mom. And then she would lose it. And then I was like, <laughs> he just gave up. He was like, you know what? Hey, you're um, on your own. You're son. on your own, man. She's just, she gets so <laughs> livid. My mom's would get nuts back then. Like, she was negative that you couldn't make a living doing it. Like, you're not going to make a living telling jokes, Joey. Like, what was it? Well, believe it or not, my mom, to be fair to her, she was negative, but not even close to as negative as my grandmother was who lived <laughs> around the block from us. Your so, Italian grandmother. Yeah, my Italian grandmom. You're laughing again because you know the jokes, but they're true. I mean, they're 100% true that she would greet me with are you still doing comedy that's what my grandma would say why why don't you quit oh my god you drove your car where oh geez joseph i mean that that's an that's a dead-on exact conversation what did she want you to do she wanted me to be a welder you know this and i mean i don't even know if she like wanted me to be a welder but when my grandfather died he died when i was young and then she remarried this guy sam who was a welder and I guess had said to her, Joey could weld. And whenever I would go visit, they would say, why don't you try welding? Or, you know, like I used to, I think I did a joke that you never even seen me do. That was kind of about, it wasn't like they were saying, why don't you become a doctor or a lawyer? Go to school and learn. <laughs> I go, they were saying, you know what? You're slow. You have problems. Have you thought about like getting a lawnmower? And maybe cutting lawns. You're you're a good edger. You know, like that was an old joke of mine. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. I haven't heard that. So there was just tons of negativity from her, and my mom was raised by her. And again, I see it. And now I'm seeing a, uh, a, a would you call it an, an uncommon situation here. My grandfather who died, he was the quiet one, and my grandma was the negative, loud one. And then my mom becomes the negative, loud one, and my dad is the... He's not quiet, but he was the more positive one. And I would say in my marriage, I'm the, you know, like, I don't want to piss off my wife guy. You know what I mean? What do I do? You know you know what, you know what I mean? Like, I kind of... My, my wife's not negative at all, though. I mean, she's very sweet. She's nothing like my grandma or my mom but definitely i tiptoe <laughs> at times well i think every i think every husband every smart husband does what he can to avoid the landmines that he knows you know you, there's certain topics you're not going to bring up and there's things you got to avoid completely or just address very gingerly but we're going to get to Steph and your relationship but i i want to talk about how your early career developed when was the first time you got paid, and when did you start to feel like, hey, this was something you could actually make a living at? You're, you're saying stuff that like literally popped in my head today. Like this is going to sound depressing, but my wife and I were texting. You know, she can always tell when I'm in a better mood because there's a lot of bad mood in what I do for a living because it's not, it, it, <laughs> it, it never feels it, it never feels steady. It always my wife. My wife is going to laugh her ass off when she hears you say that. Yeah. <laughs> so 
just uh, all it takes is like if I if you could see what my fingers are doing right now, I'm making like a like a one centimeter size thing with my two with my index finger and my thumb. All it takes is like that size of hope, which was like a Netflix meeting, you know, even though we know it's like the biggest long shot in the world. It's a hair, a hair of hope. And I'm in a good yes. mood. And I said to her today, I said, you know, 30 years in comedy, I haven't had a job. Like, like I, I guess you can't say that because like a, a gig, it's doing stand up is a gig. But, it, you know, you get you get there on Thursday and you're done by Saturday. Like I said, I haven't had like a TV show that's, you know, one, at least one season that's 13 episodes and we're working on it for like six months like so i feel like i have an office like when i do pitch a show i gotta go on metro north from westchester new york where i live i gotta go in with all the people that have day jobs you know i'm on the train with them and you know and i'm like i like this feeling i want this <laughs> i want a freaking job and my wife's like yeah you're due for one you're due for one and you're just like oh my god did you like feeling normal? Was it like, oh my God, I'm a real person here. I have a reason to go into the city during oh. the day. Well, I like, maybe one of the reasons why I like fixing things in my own home is there's a, a you feel you feel good when you start something. It's really hard. You do it, you finish it, and then you look at it. So making, in show business, making... Uh, a television show is a, is a version of that. You know, I've had like right. web, a web, I had a 13 episode web series. So we made 13 episodes. It took like a month of shooting to make all 13 of them. So it was like a month long job, you know? Right. I've had those. And I guess you, when you're building a new hour to shoot a comedy special, which I've done two of those, but that doesn't feel like going to work and making something. Maybe because it doesn't have a lot of, horrendousness to it you know like as fun as making a television show seems or making being in a film seems to people there's a lot of not fun to it there's a lot of downtime there's a lot of sitting in a trailer doing nothing there's a lot of nothing so it's like that's that's the work of it and then when it's finally finished you get to enjoy watching people enjoy it so let's go back to that early stage. When did you get paid? And then why did you move to L.A. early in your career? I probably, well, like getting paid for the first time for me probably took like three years. I remember getting paid. It was a club called the Fun House in, on campus at Lehigh. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a little bar and it paid 60 bucks to do like 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, it felt really amazing to get m just like money to tell jokes did feel good because I was like, I guess I can say I'm a professional now. I'm a pro. Right. But I mean, from that to getting to the point where you said, what, move to Los Angeles? Yeah. I mean, Jesus, that's uh, let's see if I started comedy in like 1990. It took 10, you know, 12, 10 to 12 years where I was like, I got a, I got a development deal to make my own television show on uh, NBC, and I moved to Los Angeles. But it took 12 years of uh, going to a million gigs that paid, you know, that paid $75 to do, right. you know, a bar. I mean, there was a lot of them back then. This is more of the boom than there is now. There was a million comedy clubs all around New York and New Jersey 
you know, there were a lot of bars. They were just Tuesday night, you go to this place, Wednesday night, and they always paid like 75, maybe 200 max. Mm. It's big money. Yeah. Sometimes I, I can remember there were ones where they would tie them all together. So every day you'd have to drive four hours to the next one. I remember them being, there was a stretch that went from Pennsylvania to Ohio. I still remember that. And I remember getting a speeding ticket when you were making like a hundred bucks and you had to drive four hours to get to the next hundred dollar payday <laughs> and you get a hundred and twenty dollar speeding ticket was like the worst feeling ever. Like, oh my God, I can remember nights. I remember the, probably one of the worst ones and I, it always sticks in my head. I remember I, I cried. I think I cried. <laughs> I remember uh, I couldn't find the gig. And this is before cell phones. This is like when you had a beeper. Yep. I remember having a beeper, and I couldn't find the place. It was in Staten Island. I called the club, and they said, we're not doing comedy tonight. And I could hear the other comedian doing comedy in the background. And he goes, no comedy tonight, and like hung up on me. I was like, I just heard Jim Norton doing comedy. <laughs> so I found the place. And Jim Norton was still on stage when I got there. And the guy was like, listen, uh, we, you know, the, it was the World Series was on. There was like eight people in the audience. And the guy who owned the place was this big, muscular Italian guy. And he goes, uh, we didn't have a good turnout tonight. So can I just get you dinner instead? And I said, <laughs> dude, I've been doing this like five or six years now. I'm way past can I give you a meal instead of the pay? I said, I'm here. Yeah. I'm here when I was supposed to be. Let me go up there and do what I do, and you pay me what you said you were going to pay me. He looks at me, and he goes, can we talk outside? Thank God I, I had, like, a little bit of sense. you know. And I said, I'm not going outside with you. <laughs> right? I knew that meant, do you want to go outside and get, I'm going to beat the living shit out of you, or do you want to take the... <laughs> You want to take the, the meatballs and the uh, and the uh, side of Capolini, you know? And I said, "Oh my God, no, no!" Um, and I just I just left. And I remember going in my car and punching. This is that anger again. I remember punching the steering mm. wheel very hard where it hurt my knuckles and crying, going, "What?" And out. Yeah, there's not been many times in my life where I'm yelling out loud and I'm alone. But I go, "What are you doing with your life?" What are you doing with your life? And full tears. Thus the quit while you still can. So you make it through the first 12 years and you get a six-figure holding deal with NBC and you move to LA. What was that like? I love starting from a negative place, but I would say this business has a way that it knows when you're about to think about getting out of it and it gives you, it throws you a bone. Mm-hmm it's it's so bad that i literally am at a point where if something really bad financially happens i almost get happy because i think that means something good financially is coming soon i literally think like that <laughs> so i go to la i'm on top of the world it's the biggest check i've ever gotten still to this day and it was for a hundred, I'll give numbers, and it's not even. This is like a low development deal. I mean, I knew people were getting seven hundred and fifty to a million for development deals, comedians. So mine was like a, a few years after the big ones had happened. So this was only for one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars, 
And I can remember people like turning that money down, like that ain't enough, and like turning it down. And you're like, it's to do nothing, you know. <laughs> so I move out there because I get that money, and I'm at least I knew a little bit about myself where I know I'm a hands-on guy, and I'm very obsessive compulsive, and I like things a certain way. So I said, I want to move to L.A. because I want to write this pilot with the writer. I want to be sitting next to him every day. So that's what I did. That's why I moved out there. And I had an agent at the time. I got the agent literally because I got that money. I just like handed them 10%. They just like, they show up. When you got money, they show up. Like when you need an agent because you're not doing well, you're not getting one. You need a, you need a manager because your career's not going well. Nobody wants you. It's either, I even said this today, I think, to the production company people, I said, you either have 10 people that want to buy your show or none. There's no in between. <laughs> you didn't stay in LA very long. The pilot didn't get made or didn't get picked up. I can't remember which. Neither. They didn't shoot a pilot and it didn't get picked up. It got to the point, you get the money because they, you know, they wrote the pilot. Uh, they, you know, I, they found a writer who was a pretty big name writer. And they had told me at the time, if I get this guy to write it, you're probably going to get your show on the air. Because this guy was the creator of the Hughleys, if anyone remembers D.L. Hughley. He had a sure. big show on TV called the Hughleys that was a hit and it went into syndication. And that's like, that's huge in my business. When you get a sitcom on for more than five years and you go into syndication, you just made a lot of people a lot of money for a real, not just a real, like maybe forever if the thing keeps running, you know, and they have good residuals. You just made a ton of money. So he wrote the pilot. I moved there. I was going over his house every day. And then uh, it didn't get made, didn't get picked up, got close. There was I actually had to read the whole pilot in front of the entire network at one point. They called me when I was on the road doing comedy and said, they want you to read three scenes from your pilot in front of the <laughs> network executives. Over the phone? or No, I had to go there in person. They hired an actress to do three scenes with me. This is classic. In two of the scenes, the actress was playing a guy. And, and one scene was with my girlfriend, who was supposed to be my girlfriend in the pilot. And it was... Yeah. I wasn't at a level at acting where I could pull off reading with this pretty girl and pretending like she's my brother. You know what I mean? I just wasn't at right. that level of acting yet. On top of it, the network executives, anyone who's a performer can imagine this, they don't laugh. Not only do they not laugh, they exude negative energy. So it throws your game off unless you're so unbelievable that you can't be thrown out of your uh, your comfort zone, and I, I I didn't have any I didn't have any chops acting. I I took acting class. That was it. So it took me way out of my game. I read a really poorly. I probably told you this story. This is the the guy who wrote the pilot. Literally said to all, or he said to me before we went in the room. What literally, you know, the head of NBC. I think his name was like Zucker. Zucker or Jeff Zucker that sounds familiar yeah he's kind of a big deal in the news business now is he he runs CNN yeah oh, okay so yeah he was like he's the head huge. of NBC he's a big deal yeah. huge huge as big as they get you know and this is like when Will and Grace was probably on their network you know there's some big mm -hmm. shows maybe Seinfeld towards the end of Seinfeld I don't know it in 2000 I don't, maybe not I don't know when Seinfeld went off the air 
So the energy was so negative, and but the uh, the guy who wrote the pilot says to me, "Read the three scenes, and when you're done, exit out that door right there, and then I'm going to speak on our per- behalf and try to sell this thing." Right. Right. I get no laughs when I read the three scenes, and I'm I'm I swear to God. I thought they could see my heart beating. Like, I thought you could see it. That's how hard and fast it felt like it was beating. I'm like, they see it. You, could, It's moving my shirt. That's what it felt, sure. what it felt like. And, and this is like, this connects with what I said this pitch meeting was like today where my initial instinct was correct and then it ended up being what the guy had wanted and what he said in the meeting instead of me listening to others, I... I kind of was right. This is what it should be. Let's be more true to who I am, right? Or or, or right. what I, or the kind of thing I want to do. So I, I, I bomb. I'm walking out the door to close the door. And I think the door is all the way closed. And I go, oh, my God. Like that, right? <laughs> uh-huh. And a huge laugh in that room that I was just in because the door was open a crack and they saw me. Uh, and I was like, that is like everything in business right there. They saw an honest moment, and that's what made them laugh. That's what made them react. That's what was likable. Not me trying to be cool or me trying to be something else. It was, oh, there was a glimpse of the real Joe Matarese, and yeah. that's hilarious. But we're still and, not going to make your pilot. Yeah, I mean, who knows if they would have made my pilot if I went in there and didn't give a shit and and was confident and got laughs and read the script like in a relaxed, funny way. Right. Uh, you know, unfortunately, great writing makes you relax. I don't know if people know that. So it wasn't really I'm going to th- I'm going to throw the guy who wrote the pilot with me under the bus. But if I went back and looked at that pilot now, I doubt I would go. This is this is great. I can remember right. not liking a lot of it and le- and letting it slide. So you move back to New York. You want to be closer to home. What did you do with your money, your, with your uh, holding deal money? Once again, because I never had anyone tutoring me on money, when I got that money, I was living in Los Angeles where there was no way to make money doing stand-up comedy like when I was in New York and there was gigs all over the place. And I was a hustler when I was in New York. I always had gigs. And uh, I was spending a lot of that development deal money. I was buy- I remember buying furniture, paying for dinner every time we went out when I was with friends. I got it. I got it. I was like Johnny Generous <laughs> when I had that deal. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to move back. I got to move back to New York. I-, I can't stand this place anymore. I don't-, I don't fit in here. I called my brother on the phone. He's a, little- a lot better with money than I am. And he said, how much money do you have left? And I, I, I forget. Do you want numbers here? Well, I, if you want to share them, sure. I, I didn't have much money. This is embarrassing on your show. You might have some big money people. Well, people will know. You get a development deal for 135000 and then you give your agent their cut, and you give your manager their cut, and then what? You you take taxes out. You got You're down taxes. to half. So I probably made. I probably brought home seventy five thousand, right? And then I spent a lot of it in L.A. I was paying my rent with it, all my bills, everything, and like I said, being Johnny generous. I might have had twenty five thousand dollars left when I came back, and my brother said, uh, "Buy an apartment in Hoboken." 
And I go, where's Hoboken? He goes, it's right outside the Lincoln Tunnel. It's really nice. Right. It's up and coming. You should it's you should buy an apartment there. It's two seconds from New York City. Literally, the path train, there's a ferry that you can get you to New York City, or you can drive. You're literally like a mile from the Lincoln Tunnel. So I end up buying an apartment there, and that's probably the smartest thing that I've ever done with my money in my life. I met my wife three months later. That was impressive that she saw me owning an apartment. I was fixing it up like a madman. We lived in it. Then we, I don't know how much of this story you need to make the story make sense, but we ended up moving back to California for her career. After seven months of dating, she got an internship for her PhD at UCSD Medical Center, and I had to decide, do I want to wait out the year and live, stay in New York in this apartment, or do I want to move to San Diego with her? And I was like 37 at the time. So I moved, I said, there's no way this relationship will end if I got to not be with her for a year. She could meet somebody else. I can meet somebody else. Who the hell knows? I'm I'm going. I, you know, I had wanted to be married. I wanted kids. And I wanted success. But I figured I could still have success. I can suck it up for a year in San Diego. So we ended up renting our plate, that place. And then we came back after the year. And then we lived in it. And then decided we wanted to move to the Burbs and like have a family and let's go buy a house. So I sold the apartment and I made a bunch of money. I made 150 grand on it. Oh, that's awesome. Which was pretty good for an apartment that only costs like 200. And I think it was like a 210,000 tiny two bedroom apartment with one bathroom back then in Hoboken. And then I sold it for like, I don't know, four. So 190000 I might have made. That was the down payment for your house? And in, that was the, the down payment for my first house in the Burbs. But again, not listening to myself. This connects with money. I listened to my wife. I followed her. I thought, well, she's got a PhD. She knows everything. We buy a house in the Burbs, but in a bad school district at a bad time in the market. And I want to move because the schools are so bad, I realized, after we had already bought the house. I also looked at the house with my mother-in-law, and she went up and told the owner that we love it and don't sell this to anybody else. And I was like, what are you doing? She didn't even ask me if she could do that. <laughs> oh I would not. God. And so we ended up having to pay. Not on, on top of it, we had to pay asking price for that house because I couldn't even bid low because she told them how much we oh loved my it. God. So we lose... Thanks, we lose Mom. 150 grand on that house when we finally decide to move when our first child's going to start school. So we're back to even as I look at it and then move to where I live now. Okay, so about about that time you're getting some heat in your career. You're getting uh Letterman, you're getting Comedy Central. What was what was going on work-wise? There's a second surge of heat that happens in like 2006, 2007, like about six years after that development deal fell apart. Once again, how I said that you either get nine phone calls or none. In one year, I did a Comedy Central half-hour special. I did The Late Show with David Letterman, and I got into the Montreal Comedy Festival, which was really big back then. I got all three of those things in like a three-month period. It was like, bam, bam, bam. What did you want to know about that? <laughs> So you're feeling good about your career. You're getting some heat. Are paid gigs coming along with all this attention? Yes, that always goes along with it. And then sometimes what goes along with it is cockiness. 
and you'll end up like uh, money guys end up cheating on their wives. Thank God I didn't do that. But I did that with a girlfriend that I dated before that when I got the development deal and all that heat. I remember just being a shithead of a guy and cheating on my girlfriend nonstop. And then this time when I, I get hot again, probably fired my manager and you start to think you're you're bigger than you are. You know, you, you get a little bit of heat and it, it affects your personality. I have noticed I'm the I'm usually the best husband when my career's going the worst. And when it starts to go well, I start to overfocus on my money and my career and become a shittier husband usually. So walk me through the ups and downs of the last like 12 years since you got your second wave of heat and how does that sustain? How does like to me what's crazy about the entertainment industry is you never know where your next gig's coming from and there's good times and there's fallow times. Like, how do you balance between those two and over those 12 years? Well, this is probably why I said to you, get out while you can. I feel like since I've gotten married and had kids, I don't know if I can think of some <laughs> hot point. They do say that comedy is a uh, single man's game. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to do what's required when you have a wife and you have kids and you live in a house and you don't live like all around the whole industry and you're not like living and breathing it and hanging out with everybody else nonstop. I mean, it's a very connected game. I mean, it's like link, yeah. it's like LinkedIn times a thousand. It's comedians sitting there eating chicken wings till two and o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. Every day of the week, they they sleep till noon, and then they get up and they do it again. So as soon as I wasn't able to be doing that hang, I noticed it slowly started slipping away. And like in my head, I kind of laugh when I see these comedians that are like 33, 34, 35, and they're kicking ass. I'm like, so was I at that age. Like It's like I want to walk up to them and go, you know how you feel like you're on top of the world right now? <laughs> In 10 years, you might not. You better you better get it now because it's going to get way harder, man. I hope you're saving your money. I hope you're doing smart things. I hope you're investing. Not till I lost a lot of that money and that heat that I start realizing as a comedian, try to make, you know, set yourself up. Put your money into things that, you know, I always used to talk to you about that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad where everything is about making money on things where you don't have to be there. There's a lot of things right. in, in show business where you can make money without being there because you were, you know, you set yourself up from making specials, making albums one after another, having just a huge library of things can make you money when it looks like you're a loser and you're down and out. You're you have no idea that that guy's getting checks Every three days, there's checks coming from all that stuff. Right, right. And there's certain things that you shouldn't have wasted your time on and certain things that you should spend your time on that can make money. One of the reasons why you've been able to keep this up through the lean times is that your wife, Steph, who is lovely and brilliant and very kind person. She doesn't listen to this. You don't need to say that. <laughs> oh, she's going to listen. She's. I'm going to. I'm going to email it to her. It's because she's got a great job. She's very successful in her profession. What's that dynamic like? And by the way, you talk about this in your act for those people, and we're going to play a clip. I'm not sharing anything you're not very upfront about in your whole act. Well, I mean, 
the listeners should know, anyone who is a doctor, like my wife is, she has her PhD in neuropsychology, there was a time when, you know, there was, God, no money. Like, it was really low when it started, you know, and I was kicking her butt. And now, in the last, like, seven years, she's kicking my my ass financially. She does well, and there's... It's, I, I always tell her, you know, like if she comes home with a bad day, like she hate, she said this to me recently, she got mad because she wanted me to like console her because she like had an argument with these people at the, in this, in this study that she was doing. She does a lot of, you know, things where she's getting big grants from people and they got to, you know, do the study. And she was like, oh my God, she's going on and on. And I go, but you're not going to lose your job. I go, you got a job to go to tomorrow and you'd be happy that there's like, I was trying to be positive. I didn't. And she was like mad at me because it, it sounded like <laughs> you're bringing it to you. Cause I was like, cause I was in a bad mood because um, one of the things I had set up for myself making money where you're not there was, is I have like two comedy specials that are also albums. And then I have, I think five or six other five i think i have five other just comedy albums so that's like seven comedy albums that are getting residuals from getting played on sirius xm or they're getting played on spotify or pandora or even on airplanes like there's money coming in from that and i was getting used to the money and then all of a sudden i did something kind of stupid and the money dropped out like like 90 percent and it just was like, oh, my God, that little nest egg that I the one thing that I thought I did that was smart with my career and my money that just fell apart, too. Oh, my God. And that's what I was feeling when she said that. What did you do? Well, let's see if I can say this in a way that it won't. I, I tend I am the king of saying things on podcasts and burning bridges in my career for myself. And you'll think, oh, they're not going to hear it. And then somehow they do. So suffice to say, you made a technical, like, let's say it's a distribution error of your content. It was. I can't even give myself an error. There's no way that I could have guessed that this was going to happen. Unless I was like, I really did a lot of studying. And basically what happened is a lot of the content that I was receiving money on went away when I decided to go with like a bigger company on a recording, mm. basically a record, I, ma I made a record deal with somebody. And what happened was their relationship, because I think everything in this business is relationship, or all business is relationships, right? Mm -hmm. The Their relationship, I, this is my guess, I can't, I could be wrong, but it seemed like their relationship was so good with these companies that I was receiving money for the stuff that I owned all of, it knocked those all out of the game. And now it just their stuff is what is receiving money. So now I have to give, you know, I have to give them half of my money and it went down. I thought okay. it was going to come back around and it just <sighs> didn't. It just went down and it's been staying and it went, it went really low this month. Let's go back to the the household relationship. You talk about kind of say that she's the one who has the financial upper hand. She approves purchases, but is that because she makes more money or because she's better with money because your ADD makes it hard for you to keep track of your finances? 
my ADD is going to make you ask that question over again because I heard my kids yelling downstairs while you were asking it. Go ahead. I say it all <laughs> you over You make again. jokes. You make jokes about the way that you, your wife has the upper financial hand at home and is in that she approves purchases and things like that. Is that because she makes more money than you or because she's better with money than you are, partially because your ADD makes it hard for you to keep track of finances? I don't think any, I bet it doesn't even have to do with my ADD having trouble keeping track of finances. I think it has to do with that because I know a lot of people with ADD or ADD that it um it makes you overspend it makes you impulsive and um i am an overspender so if i could just be buying everything that i wanted that's probably another thing that soothes me like i said laughter soothes me when i'm depressed or feeling anxious or i'm in a bad mood so does buying stuff oh really so she has to put strong holds on me sometimes that what does that feel like when you like like, tell me about that like what would you buy to make yourself feel more calm well what i usually do is because i'm good at fixing things around our house is i just start the next project she's like can you can we stop starting next projects constantly because i'm they're big ones like i'm like i started it i'm redoing the whole basement and and then it begins and i'm like unavailable mentally and i'm spending money i'm paying guys to do the stuff that i don't know how to do on certain parts of the job and then you know it just goes and then that job gets done and i'm like i'm doing the deck we're redoing the whole deck and we're gonna put a fence like it's just i just do a lot of that it's not like clothes and stuff that you would think it would be it's a lot of i'd say it's almost all house I try to, I need, mm. I'm, a, I'm a perfectionist. So if something looks a little bit like an eyesore and, it's, and no one else would even notice it being an eyesore, I'll be like, oh my God, I want to, I just paint, I just got a black garage door. I need to paint all the inside of my casement windows <laughs> black. I'm going to paint that wood black, which would take forever. I think it count, I think I have 37 windows in my house. And they all have like their casement windows that crank out and they're all wood on the inside and like vinyl on the outside, those kind of windows. To paint the inside of those windows would be such a job. It's ridiculous that I even think that. I'm like, eh, I'm going to do it. I'll do six at a time. I think you should come to my house and start fixing stuff. <laughs> all right, you're 51 years old. What is like, how do you see comedy for the future until you retire? Do you have like a year in mind that you want to? slow down or that like, like what's what is what is transitioning into being old look like that, for that's you a, work-wise? that's a great great and kind of comedic question because we just had the uh, financial planner come to our house like about a month ago and we were going over all that in retirement and i looked you know he's making all he has all these like pie graphs and everything and he's like <laughs> you know you're gonna retire at i don't know it was like 62 or something i go whoa whoa whoa, whoa. I go, I'm a comedian. I go, I'm not going to stop doing comedy at 62. I'm like, you got to go up to like 80 with me. I'm working till I'm about eight, maybe more. I probably work to 85. Are you going to get paid until you're 85 though? That's, that's the question. The, that's what I'm like thinking in my head is like that, you know, we are setting things up and putting money aside. But if I blow through it and keep fixing things on the house and cranking up that home equity loan like a moron, <laughs> there's going to be 
nothing and I'm going to have to work in my 80s. The last thing you want to do is like, I guess I could connect that with, I can remember once needing money so badly that I got in a car accident on the way to my gig. I had to go to the emergency room, get all checked out, and then they gave me a clean bill of health, but my neck was like killing me. And I got back in the car and I drove to the gig and still did it and had to hold my head up while I was doing stand-up because my neck, I couldn't hold it with my neck muscles. And like, that's ridiculous because I needed the hundred. How'd you do? I did terribly. I needed like the whatever that gig paid. And just for your listeners so they don't think I'm a complete pathetic financial loser. I mean, this is like 20 years ago. But I don't want to ever be that. So my wife does step in and, you know, has the financial guy. And we're putting money aside where we are. I mean, it's where we need it. And it's not. It's definitely not enough. We don't have any sort. I don't own a stock. I've never owned a stock in my life nothing ah they're overrated stocks overrated so if you weren't doing comedy what would joe matteris be doing that's a really hard question because sometimes i wish i was in a non-creative field but then i think about doing a job that's not creative and i just probably would hate it because i end up burning out fast if it doesn't feel creative because i've always thought oh i'd like to be you know uh own a bar or own a restaurant or, or it would have to be some sort of self-employed job. But right to be if I was going to own some sort of business, I'd have to figure out a way to add creativity to the business. And I mean, some people do that now. You see creative things in restaurants. You're like, oh, that was really creative, that little idea. So I could see myself, you know, doing that, being very entrepreneurial. You know, I, I, I love... I love business and I'm smart enough to know nowadays it seems like in the last like three years I've met a lot of people in business and they'll go wow you got a lot of really good ideas and I'm like I never really realized that about myself so if there was some way to put these ideas into motion and have them happen instead of being in the comedy world where it's like unless you have 1.5 million Instagram followers you can't sell your idea right I would love to be able to be in some sort of field where the idea sold on and it didn't have anything to do with your 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 social media following. Two questions before we get to the lightning round. First one, <laughs> what would you say to either your son or your daughter if they told you they wanted to be a stand-up comedian? Well, I can already tell my daughter is going to be going towards show business. It's just obvious. You just know when you grew up the way you grew up and you just see it. I used to think mine was because of semi-dysfunctional things happening, but now that I see my daughter leaning towards it, I think you're just you're either that way or you're not. So if they really want to do it, I mean, I'm I'm not going to I'm definitely a believer in steering them towards following their dream and not saying don't do that because it's going to break your heart or whatever. I wouldn't say that. Right. I'd love it if they didn't because it's just got a lot of unfairness to it. But, you know, I guess every parent thinks that they could teach their kid how to do what they did but do it better. Yeah. Like mentor it. If they would let me, I would try to help in any way I could. But like I said, I'd, I'd, I'd love it if they uh, didn't. And I have my son is probably not going to be interested in this at all. 
he's had offers like because we have friends in the business they'll be like we need a kid your son's age who plays baseball to do these commercials it'll pay five thousand bucks and he's like i do i do i do need the money but if i i can't talk on camera there's no way and he just says no so he has no interest he just knows that that would make him really uncomfortable good for him the last question before the lightning round did you get a role in the high school play (laughs) yeah i did i still remember and it's funny because i just saw the um the hugh jackman movie what was that movie uh that he did about barnum um something showman the world's greatest showman is that what it's called Uh uh-huh excellent movie by the way I saw it with my kids. We loved it. It's one of those movies you love it and your kids love it. God, I must have ADD. I'm gonna, I, I need you to re-ask the question. Oh, my God. I just answered half of the question and forget what you asked me. Your listeners should know it's literally like 110 degrees in my room right now. I shut the air conditioner I should have insisted that you take a, an Adderall before this No, this no, because you get the more you, real I've version s- of me, though. You can right. edit Did this you get and a fix ro- it. Did you get a role? Oh, did in the I high get a role? Play? Okay, that's why I brought up. Um, you can leave this in as is. That's why I got the part. It was it was uh, Barnum was the play, and I got a part in it. And then it was funny because when I went and saw that World's Greatest Showman, there's all these people in the background juggling and doing crap. That's like what I got a part playing. I was the parts. It was almost like an extra with a name. It was called like a roustabout was the name of the part aroused about yeah because nice. i remember i had i didn't have i didn't like pick a script up and read in the audition they said just do anything and i think i and they said can you juggle and i could juggle a little bit so i juggled some balls uh-huh. and i started break dancing i remember and spinning around on like my back and my hand and doing some sort of acrobatic like stuff because i was into into that back then and that's why i got the part as the roused about just the way P.T. Barnum would have wanted yeah. it. Okay, lightning round. Favorite comedian of all time? The same answer I would always say is Richard Pryor is my favorite of all time. Three words that describe you at your best. Completely relaxed and in the moment. I'm not sure that's three oh, what words. What did you say? You want three words? So I would say relaxed. What's one word for being in the moment? Present. Present. Relaxed, present, confident. Nice. Three words that describe you at your worst. Anxious, angry. I wish this I wish there was one word for overly trying. Uh, You're a thesaurus. Com- it? Comedian. Comedian. That's not is the a word. word I think you're looking for. No, no, no. Because a comedian <laughs> and the uh, there's a difference between a wanting. comedian and something. You are wanting. Needy. Needy. There you go. All right. Biggest financial fear. Jeez. Homeless. Well, if you wanted one word, it would be like foreclosure. Oh, that's a good one. Biggest financial dream. What do you mean by that? Like I don't know. What's my dream? Like financially? If you had, let me put it this way. If you had $10 million. Okay. What's the first thing you would do? I would I always wanted to own property in like totally different places. Like own a villa in Italy, own a house, you know, in a beach area I love. Like I love Newport, Newport, Rhode Island. Own something there. 
like because that's totally different than Italy. And then maybe uh, ask my wife. Like, I love giving. I notice that I get a lot more pleasure out of giving than receiving. So being able to financially give to my kids and my wife would like something they would just die to have to fulfill that. That would be great. Awesome. And where can our listeners find out more about you on the internet social world? Everything's on my website, joematterese.com. If you could do anything for me by listening to me on this podcast, all I really ask is subscribe to my email list. That's all I ask. joematterese.com, it'll pop right up for you there. Just subscribe so you'll know when I'm performing near you or I'm uh, doing something exciting in my career or if I sold that Netflix show. Simple, easy, and free. And Joe Matarese is J-O-E-M-A-T-A-R-E-S-E. Joe, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for even wanting to have me on a show like this. I appreciate it. I always like talking to you. Thank you, Joe, for your time and your candor. I really appreciate you sharing your insights with us. What do you think, ladies and gentlemen? Should you have gone into the arts at 22 years old? Or should you have quit when you were 35? I don't know. It's hard to say. On the one hand, you get to chase your dream. On the other hand... You sacrifice a good amount of economic stability by doing so. So it's a conundrum, you know, it's not perfect. There's no roadmap, no roadmaps. Hey, if you want to help me pay a couple of bills, that was an awkward segue, wasn't it? Go to iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon and listen to and or purchase my comedy EP Alive on the Upper West Side from December of last year. It's pretty darn funny and I hope you enjoy it. Also, why don't you take a moment, please, and give us a rating on iTunes or whatever app that you listen to this, this podcast on. Yeah, I got confused for a second there. Sorry about that. Give us a rating. Tell us what you think. Honestly, come on. Give me a rating. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. You can send me an email at paulollinger at gmail.com with more thoughts, guest suggestions, whatever. I've got some amazing guests coming up. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but I just booked a Nobel Prize winning economics professor. I'm going to interview him next month. So I'm pretty excited about that. Thank you to my editor slash producer, Mike Carano. You are the wind beneath my wings. Goodbye.